Welcome to Off the Cuff with Congressman Jared Huffman. As a representative for California's 2nd Congressional District, Off the Cuff is my opportunity to talk with you about important issues and to introduce you to interesting people from the 2nd District and beyond. It's unfiltered, it's direct, and it's honest. It's Off the Cuff with me, Congressman Jared Huffman. Welcome back to this week's episode of Off the Cuff with Congressman Jared Huffman. That's me. My guest today is a very special constituent of mine who has been in the news a lot this week. Her name is Phyllis Gould. She is 95 years young, lives in Fairfax, California, and she is a real-life Rosie the Riveter, uh, which makes her kind of a big deal since they helped win World War II. So uh, really excited to talk with Phyllis, but before we do that, I just want to preview for you that after my conversation with Phyllis, we're going to share with you some of the greatest hits from my recent town hall events. I've been doing these town halls all over my district over the last couple of months. Uh, they have been jam-packed with constituents who are energized, engaged, ready to get informed and learn about what's going on, share their concerns and ideas, and I wanted to share with you some examples of this terrific civic engagement that we've been having in our town halls. But now uh, back to Phyllis. Uh, Phyllis Gould was one of the first six women to work as a Navy certified journeyman welder at the Kaiser Richmond Shipyard. This had never happened before uh, until the Rosie program got started. She helped build Liberty and Victory ships to replace those that were being torpedoed by Nazi submarines. She is an American hero. Uh, a champion for the cause of uh, celebrating the history of uh, Rosie the Riveters, and uh, a real dynamo in every way, as you will soon see. Phyllis, welcome to my podcast. Hi. <laughs> I want to start by asking you about being one of the first female Navy welders at the Kaiser Shipyards. What had you been doing before that? Well, I was a housewife and mother of a small child. So this was a huge change for you. What made you want to go into the workforce and be a welder? I have no idea. It was just my husband said he was going to go to welding school and get a job in the shipyards. And I don't know why I said it, but I said I wanted to do that too, and I didn't even know what a welder was. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about what the training was like? How, how, uh, you know, how did they transition women like you who had not been part of the workforce into actually being welders at shipyards? I went to the employment place, and they uh, assigned me a, a four to eight in the morning class to learn to weld at Richmond High School. And uh, the class lasted for two weeks. So we didn't know a whole lot, but we knew enough. And uh, they they said, go into Oakland to the hiring hall and get your job. And I went, but they wouldn't hire me. Why not? They said, you have to belong to the Boilermakers Union. So I went there, and this man said, we don't take women or blacks. Well, that was another era, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I I kept going back, and then I went this one time, and I went up to the 
window, and they said no again, and uh, I just started crying. And some man at a table at the back of the hiring hall asked me what the problem was, and I said, they won't give me a job. And he said, go back up there. And I don't know if I went to a different window or not, but they hired me. And then they said, but we can't send you out on the job until the Boilermakers Union admits women. So they had a, a, a group of six of us on hold. And then in July of 1942, the Boilermakers Union gave in. And Kaiser then hired a chaperone to take us out on the job because they had no idea how the men would react to us. And how was that reaction? Uh, everything went fine. I, I didn't have any problems, and I don't know that anyone else did. I was assigned to a crew of, of course, all men, and I knew some of them didn't know much more about welding than I did. And I had been doing just little tacking things and not, you know, vertical welding or anything like that. So this one morning I just decided I'd had it. And as my lead man would point to what needed to be done, I'd say, I can do that. Mm -hmm. And before he was through, I, he said, okay, <laughs> you know, do it. And uh, then I became a real welder. And I'm not sure how long it took to put it all together, but in the in that war years, we built 747 ships in the Kaiser shipyard. Wow. More than any other shipyard anywhere. Can you walk us through what a typical work day was like? Um Sure. Uh, we each had a welding machine, and we all, always had our favorites, so you'd make a dash to get your favorite machine and then be assigned where you would work. Sometimes it was three stories up on these uh, deck houses. Then you'd uh, put together the number of... Uh, pieces of electrical cord, which was big and heavy, and I, I can't remember how many feet each section was, so that you could get to the place you were supposed to work. And sometimes you'd try to strike an arc and nothing happened. Somebody had stolen one of your sections, so had to go back and get it all together. So climbing up a ladder on the outside of a three-story building, carrying a coil of line over your shoulder and your big gloves, and uh, it was hard work. It sounds physically demanding. Yes. And you'd never done anything like that before? No. So uh, did you have any particularly memorable events from doing all this hard work at the shipyard? Once I got on graveyard shift, there was a big, tall kid, and they didn't want to let me on graveyard shift, but finally I talked my way in. And uh, 
He told everybody that I was his sister and leave me alone. <laughs> kind so, of your, your protector, huh? Yeah. So I didn't have any any problems. Uh, I loved the welding part of it. And a, and a weird side thing to it was I had worn reading glasses before that and constantly following the arc uh, of your weld built up the muscles in my eye, I guess, because I didn't need glasses for several years after that. Wow. I'm going to have to give this a try. My, uh, <laughs> <laughs> my reading vision has been going downhill. Uh, did you have any idea when you were doing all this work of the importance of it? Did you did you have a sense that you were contributing to this fight for freedom that was shaping the entire world? In a sense, we did, because everyone was contributing something. And, of course, we didn't have instant pictures of what was going on or anything. It was very restricted. And uh, the only time we saw pictures of the war was to go to the movies and see the the news. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think we all were patriotic in different ways. I was a 20-year-old, and it was fun, you know? Uh, it was serious, but it was it was also a fun time. But through those newsreels, you eventually learned that this was being called the Rosie the Riveter program, right? You, that's that's the the those were the talking points we put out. We kind of celebrated that iconic Rosie the Riveter image. Well, that came about. There was the song Rosie the Riveter, and then there were the posters and the cover on Saturday Evening Post. Mm-hmm. But we didn't call ourselves Rosie. You didn't. Did you think of yourself as one of the Rosies? No. That didn't come about until the late uh, 90s when they started the National Park. Uh-huh. So uh, after the war, I'm just wondering, you, you learned all these skills. Did you stay working as a welder, or did you move into a different profession? No, I went back to being what I was before. Although, an interesting thing about uh, my husband and me, uh, as I became a journeyman welder, I was doing the same work he was doing, and I got the same pay. Wow. And he could not handle it. He left me. It was a different world back then, a different mindset. A man's whole pride was in how he took care of his family. And I had taken that away because I had my own money and I'd spend it on things that he wouldn't have allowed me to have. Well, and the men of America, uh, once the war was over, were uh, also uncomfortable and threatened enough that a lot of these workplace opportunities went away, right? Oh, definitely. And in a way, we were glad. And my sister, I think, said it best. She said, the men signed on for a hitch in the military, and we signed on for a hitch making it possible for them to win the war. Yeah. 
Well, you sure did that. And uh, we have finally, uh, all these years later, begun to properly acknowledge your contribution to winning that war. I just want to talk for a moment about all the work that you've been doing to get recognition uh, for Rosie the Riveters. You have been at this now for nearly a decade, advocating all the way up to the President of the United States. You've, <laughs> you've met Barack Obama, you've met Joe Biden, you've been here in the Capitol with me, and Nancy Pelosi and others have hosted you for receptions. Uh, and after all of this work, um, finally, uh, just within the last few days, the United States Senate uh, passed a very important resolution recognizing Rosie the Riveter today. Congratulations. <laughs> uh, it, it's been a long time coming, but when we went to D.C. and went to the White House, I thought we'd finally been recognized for what we did. And it turned out it was a short-lived 15 minutes of fame. Uh, after I got home, someone asked me to call a seventh-grade girl in Fairfield, and I did. Her history teacher had assigned the class to do a project on someone they admired, and she chose Rosie the Riveter. And that man said, that's not acceptable because they're not real. And she said, I know they are. I saw them on TV. She did her project, and he gave her a failing grade. And I talked to her parents, and they had gone to the school and talked to him, and he refused to reverse the grade. Wow. And I knew then that it was going to take something else, and my idea was to get it on a calendar. Yeah. And that began my association with you and our journey. Yes. <laughs> and well, finally, victory. That's right. And uh, such an important thing to recognize this. Uh, most most people would, I think, be very surprised to hear the story you just shared, that uh, uh, an educator actually didn't understand that this really happened, that women really did men's work, that got paid the same wages as men, and made a huge contribution to, to winning World War II. So we do need to recognize that. And, and it sort of brings me to the subject of where women are today in 2017, still struggling to achieve equal pay for equal work. Do you have any advice for women who are working to try to, try to get the same benefit that you had back in 1945, at least temporarily, during the war period? I was just stunned when I... Uh, learned that women weren't getting equal pay. The women in the trades had a, a convention or a gathering, and they invited some of us. And that was the first time I knew that they were still fighting the battle for that. Uh, I don't understand it, and I don't know how you fight it. Uh, I belong to a union, and maybe that's the answer. I don't know. Well, you you finally got in the door to that union. It's it's part of one of the more um, amazing things about your story is the resistance that you had becoming a boilermaker and the prejudice that they uh, initially presented you with. Thanks for your perseverance and uh, your inspiring story, Phyllis. And uh, just one last question. You've got a daughter 
and granddaughters. Um, what advice do you give them? What do you tell them about um, having dreams, uh, achieving whatever they want to achieve, and fighting for equal rights? Well, I think they've grown up knowing that, just watching me. <laughs> uh, we had a Rosie rally, and my daughter was there, my granddaughter, and my six-year-old great-granddaughter. And the young one is just revved up beyond the other two. Mm. She was dressed like a Rosie with her polka dot bandana. And uh, I think it's just uh, once people across the country realize what we did, the enthusiasm will be there. Women are on the march for all kinds of reasons. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so they can just include us. Well, that sounds great. Phyllis, thank you uh, again for being such an inspiration. I'm really proud to represent you, and I appreciate you sharing your story on the podcast. Well, thank you for what you've done. What a great American, Phyllis Gould. I sure enjoyed that conversation. And uh, now, as promised, I want to share with you some uh, excerpts from our recent town halls. Not everybody can get out to one of my town halls, but uh, if you have been to them, you know that they've been hugely attended. We had around 2,000 people attend one last week in Marin County on a Monday at noon, uh, and that's not been unusual. So uh, listen to... These clips from our town halls, I hope you enjoy them. Certainly, I think it's proof positive of what I already know, that the North Coast has the most engaged constituents in America, and I'm lucky to represent you in Congress. Enjoy. Uh, my name is Stephen Brower, and first of all, I'd like to echo uh, my thanks to, to you, Congressman, and to the panel for being here today. Um, I, have a two, I have a question and a comment. The first is the comment. Given that we're in a highly polarized environment and we're talking about healthcare, people's lives, um, I urge you and the fellow uh, members of the Democratic Caucus to fight like hell to preserve the core elements of the Affordable Care Act. As many of you have, have alluded to, it seems like the activism that you're feeling here and seeing here is starting to have an impact in Washington, but we really need you all to fight like hell for, our, for the Affordable Care Act. My, my, my question is, and I, I am a member of the Community Leadership Board of the American Diabetes Association, um, my question is, what are we going to do, what are you going to do to fight prescription drug inflation? And I would say start with insulin, which is dominated by two pharmaceutical companies and where price increases bear no relation to the inputs to the drug. It's all about margin enhancement. Thank you. Thank you for the comment and the question. Uh, let me just say in response to the comment, the, uh, the entreaty for me to fight. Um, 
this is not the political climate that I want to be working in, folks. I'll be very, very honest with you. Some of you have known me for a long time. I got into this, this public service uh, business because I want to do stuff. I want to make a difference. I want to solve tough problems. I'm kind of a policy wonk. And I actually enjoy uh, the constructive friction that exists when our two different parties are throwing out ideas and debating them. Uh, hopefully with the goal of eventually finding things we can do together from time to time. Um, I had hoped when I ran for Congress in 2012 that I could maybe help improve the tone and help improve the outcomes, make Congress a little more productive. I still want that. I really do. Uh, but it's very clear to me right now that that's not the way I've got to do my job. I am much more of a pugilist right now. Right. And I am very clear that we are not going to get Congress turned around. We're not going to get back to that productive, constructive friction where we do things and improve people's lives and make a difference unless we win these fights right now. So I get it. Now, um, on, your, uh, on your question about runaway drug costs, this is another big, big deal. And I want to invite feedback from everyone on the panel on this one. But there's a number of things that I think we need to be doing. We may be able to do some of them in a bipartisan basis. I mean, we've heard Donald Trump say that uh, this is a concern of his. He was really uh, rhetorically letting the drug companies have it for a while. And then he had a bunch of the CEOs into the Oval Office. And uh, afterwards, he said, they're just wonderful people. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't know what we're going to get from Donald Trump. But at various times, he has really taken them to task for high drug costs. And he's talked about, uh, for example, letting, our, letting Medicare, Medicaid negotiate for better prices. That's sort of a no-brainer. Uh, we ought to be doing that, letting folks purchase medications from Canada, other places. I think that's probably a good idea, too. Um, I think the generic drug market is very important, and I think we have to crack down on abuses that we have seen from some of the big drug companies that have actually engaged in uh, anti-competitive actions to pay generic uh, companies not to produce drugs so that they can continue to have their high prices and their monopoly. That, we ought to just crack down on that and it ought to be absolutely illegal. Um, we've seen folks abuse patent privileges. So uh, I'm familiar with one case where an asthma inhaler uh, had to be changed because the California Air Board, I believe, had a new regulation about the propellant in the inhaler. And so the drug company that had, uh, had this product passed its patent life and now had to offer it very cheaply, there were generics, there was competition, uh, suddenly reformulated with a new propellant, right. reopened that patent, and had exclusivity again and jacked the prices up by multiples. So uh, you see these kind of gouging actions, and something has to be done. My preference would be, uh, because you know there is a downside if we have iron-fisted price control, that can, that can limit innovation, it can limit new drugs coming to market. But at some point, there has to be a backstop for consumers. Right. And I think that's a conversation we desperately need to have. And there needs to be a point at which the government does step in to protect you from that type of abuse. So, yeah. All right, we're starting to get 
to the last 10 minutes. And I want to know, I want you to know that the, the biggest question we're getting is about how to fight. And so, again, people are asking how they can help, how they can fight. Um, the first set of questions I asked about that earlier were about how can you can work with Republicans? How can you work with people with a different point of view? These folks are all asking you, how are you going to fight? All right, so there are, thank you for that concern, and that is the question I get the most everywhere I go these days. What can I do? How can we fight? There are things I would like to say in answer to that question that I can't really say at a taxpayer-funded event because they involve drawing all of you operationally into on-the-ground politics. I want to have that conversation with you, I really do, uh, but I can't do it here. Uh, we'll find a way to have that conversation, so if you're interested in that, stay tuned. But look, right now, right now, I think you are doing something that is responsive to that question. You are showing up. You're getting engaged. You're getting smarter about these issues because every one of you is an advocate for these issues. And, you know, I, I think it's just rather amazing that this room was full today at noon on a Monday and people have stayed through a long, wonky conversation about health care because you care about these things and you want to do something. So don't sell short the fact that you are participating in something that is part of how we're going to fight back and how we're going to win this. Uh, and we'll find ways to operationalize it and translate it into politics and into the 2018 midterm elections rather specifically. Thank you, everybody, for listening to this week's episode of Off the Cuff. Please send any and all questions to huffmanpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll be back to visit with you soon. Off the Cuff is produced by Marin's own Tales Untold Media. Our music is also local, provided by Temp Love. Don't miss out on future episodes of Off the Cuff. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Just search for Off the Cuff with Jared Huffman.